What's up, friends? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see you. Very good to be with all of you today. Uh, man, it's, uh, it's great as we're in the season of Lent, too, and anticipating Easter. We, we follow a Savior who loves us, a Savior who gave himself for us, and it's, it's great to be with you and to worship him together today. Uh, as we move towards Easter, the series that we're doing during the season of Lent is called Dust to Dust. Uh, and in and, and Ash Wednesday and in Lent, we think about this matter of our humanness, our, our bodily existence, our humanity, and what that means. And so we're just kind of exploring some different aspects of that. What does it mean that God gave us bodies? Right? It didn't have to be this way, but it is. And why? And what does that mean for us? So um, just to recap a little bit, we've talked in the last couple of weeks about how the body is not sinful or dirty or shameful. God declares that the body is good, that it's part of his intent for us. It's a good gift that he's given us to steward. Uh, last week, we talked about how uh, my happiness does not hinge on how my body looks or how my body works, uh, that there is, there is a deeper level to this, wherein God sees all of us and he loves us, and, uh, and he invites us to grow deeper into that. And uh, this week is also about how we see our bodies, but in sort of a different way, right? We talked last week about how, how in our fallenness, we have this tendency to sometimes make too much of our bodies, uh, but we also have the opposite tendency in us at the same time, to sometimes make too little of our bodies as well. And uh, all right, to, to get ourselves into what we're talking about this morning, I'm going to start by having you picture me at four years old. Right, And this is really easy to do because I basically looked exactly the same but with a bowl cut and like white blonde hair. So here we go. This is real footage. Tim Mori at four years old. I found a second picture along the way too. This one is extra delightful. Look at this. <laughs> I love this. So same, same look, little tummy. Right, We talked about that last week. Uh, and then the pipe, I can't really explain it. It feels like there's some questionable parenting choices going on in this, but I don't know the context. It's, in, it's entirely possible that uh, like, this is where my love of C.S. Lewis began. I'm not sure, uh, but this, this is a thing. So, um, All right, so you've got this picture now of me at four years old, and now, now there's a story that goes with this. Uh, because at, at right around four years old, and I, I remember this because I have a weird memory and remember a lot of my childhood, and also because this particular incident scarred me for life. Not too badly, but uh, it, it stuck with me. I was sitting at the kitchen table with my mom and my dad, and, and I'm sitting there and we're eating together. And I was super meticulous about this. Everything on my plate needed to be not touching Everything else on my plate. The peas could not touch the potatoes, could not touch the meat, could not, they had to be entirely separate, and never should they meet. And I, I had some peas get into my potatoes, and I was a little horrified, and I'm trying to move them away from it. And either my mom or my dad says to me in that moment, you know, Tim, and they called me Tim because I had recently informed them that Timmy was too immature of a name, and, uh, and I, had, I had moved past that as a four-year-old. I needed to be addressed as Tim. 
This is really what it was like to raise me. Um, but they informed me, uh, you know, when the food goes into your stomach, it all goes into the same place. And I was like, what? And they were like, oh, yeah, your stomach is like one giant bag, and everything that you eat goes into that bag, and it mixes together before your body digests it. And I was horrified. And my head was spinning, like the world is moving. Every, everything changed for me in that moment. I could not believe it because, of course, of, of course this is the way it is. I had always thought this. Obviously, the food stays separate on your plate, so when it goes into your body, of course, there's a little pouch inside of there for the peas, and there's another pouch for the potatoes. I visualized it this way, and my world came unraveled in that moment. Very upsetting to me. Now, when we talk about uh, our, ourselves as people, and we talk about our physical selves, many of us have either consciously or unconsciously a view of self where everything is in its own compartment, and they don't really interact with each other. So you've got your body, and you've got your spirit, and you've got your mind, and you've got your heart, and these these things are all sort of in their separate places, and they don't interact, they don't mix with each other, at least, at least in the way that we think about it, or sometimes in the way that we are living it out. And this can lead us to a host of problems, friends. We've talked about a couple of them over the last couple of weeks. One of those issues is the curious moral evaluations that we sometimes make when there is a disconnect between our body and our spirit, a disconnect between our outer world and our inner world. So, uh, so this, is, this is myth number three about our body. This is the one we're doing today, and we'll state it like this. My heart is God's, so what I do with my body doesn't really matter. My inner world is aligned with God. My inner world is committed to Christ, and so if the body doesn't always line up with that, well, maybe it's not that big of a deal. And maybe you hear that, and maybe you say, no, I don't think like that. That, that makes no sense. But just hold that for a moment. And uh, maybe it's not a challenge for you, but perhaps it is. This was a major challenge in the New Testament churches, particularly as the gospel went from Israel, where they did have a very, uh, a very unified view of the human person, and as it went out into the Greco-Roman world, where they had what's known as a more dualistic view, where you had the person divided into all of its parts. And the parts didn't always need to agree with each other. We are essentially children of that culture. We are children of the Greco-Roman people. And for them, uh, and this came largely from Plato and Aristotle, uh, but they had this view of the world where matter, the material world, was bad and spirit was good. And so uh, because of that, the body was often seen as dirty or shameful or sinful. Some people associate that line of thinking with Christianity, and it's totally incorrect. That's actually a Greco-Roman idea. Uh, but that would be something over here. But then on the other side, my spirit, my soul, that's, that's the real me. That's what's pure. That's what I need to worry about. The body could be a little bit inconsequential. So as, as the gospel moved out into the Greco-Roman world, one of the challenges that they dealt with as these folks were coming to faith in Christ was having them 
align what their body did with what they were saying they believed or felt in their hearts to be true about God. So I want to give you a couple examples here and just see if any of these fit our culture today. See if any of these fit maybe how sometimes you find yourself thinking. Uh, But there is, in the New Testament letters, there's a number of sayings and slogans that were going around these churches, and Paul and the other writers are addressing these. Here's a couple. I'm paraphrasing them so you'll recognize them uh, a little more, but here's one. This body is only temporary, right? This body won't last. This body won't go on to eternity. The part of me that goes on to eternity, my soul, well, that's the part that's important. So if my body sins, well, maybe that's not that big a deal because that part of me isn't eternal. A second one. My body is just doing what feels natural. I'm just doing what comes natural to me. Uh, You know, this is just how I'm made. I can't deny my body the things that it naturally wants. That would be like denying my very self. And so... Uh, and maybe, maybe you've heard some of these things before, but these are things I've, I've heard people say to me over the years. You know, you can't expect me to just have one partner. I, I have an appetite for women, and I, I couldn't be restricted in that. Right? I'd give more money, but I have a taste for the finer things in life. And so I, I can't really be a person who gives. Right? I have a crazy sweet tooth. Right? Yeah, I know gluttony is wrong, but this, I can't help it. This is the way that I am wired. Or I just, I really always need to have a romantic partner in my life. And I'm not sure how Christian marriage fits into that. Right? You get the idea? Right? It's this disconnect. It feels natural to my body. So if that doesn't align with the rest of me, well, maybe that's okay. Here's another one. God is gracious. I can do what I want because he will just forgive me anyway. Anyone in this room not ever say that? But this was an issue. In Romans 6, among others, it addresses this. It's kind of the sin now, worry about it later plan, if you will. And then one more, and uh, this is the most American of slogans. I have freedom to do what I want. Right? And so we reason, and they reason. Christianity, well, it's not about rules. It's about relationships. So what does it matter if there's some rules that I just sort of ignore? I'll still be saved, right? Right? I think. And we find ways to justify a divide, a gap between what our body wants and giving our body what it wants, and at the same time being able to tell ourselves, no, no, no. I'm, I'm still with Jesus. My heart's with him, right? Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm, I'm not talking about us trying to do the right thing and failing, right? I'm not talking about our propensity, even as much as we want to, to follow God and we fall short. That is part of the human experience, part of the Christian experience, and God's grace covers that in every way imaginable. Now, I'm talking about something a layer deeper, I'm talking about the ways in which we reason to ourselves that the gap between our outer world and our inner world is okay. And and I would suggest to you this, this dualism, this way of thinking, 
is one of the most toxic things that we can have going on in our spiritual lives. It's one thing to know the truth and fail to live into the truth. It's another thing to tell ourselves lies and allow ourselves to be deceived. So, in contrast, what do we find the scripture saying to this mindset? What do we find Jesus saying to this? What does the New Testament church say? And we might sum it up this way. That God says to us, when you give me your heart, you are giving me your body as well. In other words, we come to God as whole people. Right? You remember Jesus saying, if you know this text, you remember Jesus saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and what? Your strength, your body. It's the whole thing. All of us is in this. When we come to Christ, when we pledge ourselves to be his disciples, it is all of us that is living into that commitment. We can't be like the food on my childhood plate, separated into our parts, and never those parts should meet. Now, uh, remember as we come into these texts that this isn't new. This is one of the most common problems of the church in New Testament times. And it's, uh, it's a problem for us as well. Uh, there's two truths in particular that the New Testament keeps coming back to. And as we think about how is it that we, we get our thinking right on this? How can we live in a way when there's integrity between our mind and our body? where there is an integration, where there's a sameness there? How do we do this? Two truths the New Testament keeps coming back to. It's these. Remember whose you are and choose spirit over flesh. Uh, Let's pray together and we'll, uh, we'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you this morning rejoicing in your goodness and also confessing our own weakness. Lord, we do confess to you our propensity to tell ourselves stories in order to do and be what we want. But God, we, uh, we want to confess to you that our desire is different. Lord, would you just stir up in us a desire to follow you, heart and soul and body. God, may with every part of ourselves, may we glorify you. And God, we pray that you would be doing your work even this morning as we worship together in song and in prayer and communion and in the scriptures. We pray, God, that you would be doing your work of making us more like Christ. And God, we pray too that the fruit of that would be not only lives that look like yours, but lives that impact this world around us. God, make us your mission people even as we are transformed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so first, it's remember whose you are. This is 1 Corinthians 6. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sin, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Uh, Now, let's pause there for a second. Uh, A couple of those slogans that were thrown around in some of the early churches, you see those here, right? This idea that I'm free, I can do what I want. This this nod to the body's appetites, right? The body is made for this thing. Why should I deny it, this thing? And and that it's temporary anyway. And Paul, in this last line here, uh, Paul just kind of throws out a flat no. He says, no, no, no. 
Your body is not made for sin. It's made for God. Your body isn't made for sin. It's made for God. Right? And we have to pause there because there's part of us that says, wait a minute, the body is not just my personal playground? No, no. The body is not made for sin. It's made for God. He gave us a body that we might glorify him in it. And Paul makes this very audacious claim that we belong to him. For many of us, consciously or unconsciously, we believe the most important question that we can ask ourselves is, who am I? Right? It's who we are. And the way we determine that is we look inside and we examine our heart and we look at our desires and we say, okay, that's who I am. I'm going to obey that. Right? That's how I be true to myself. Deep introspection, listen to what I hear, and then act on it. But for Paul, for the New Testament church, there's a deeper question that you have to ask. It's whose you are. Not just who you are, but whose. To whom do you belong? Paul says your body is not made for sin. It's made for the Lord. That is the who. Uh, Reading on, verse 19. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. All right, so Paul, Paul hears this dualistic thinking. He addresses this and he says, no, no, no. It's not about what your body wants. It's not about who you think you are. It's about to whom you belong. And you belong to Christ. And then he ups it even further. He says, don't you remember God dwells in your body. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? And we have to remember, in the New Testament world, temples are everywhere. For every God, there is a temple. There is a place where that God is worshipped. And one of the things that the world found so odd about Christians is they, they had no temple. Right? This, if, if you met somebody in the ancient world and you were asking them about their gods, this would be one of your first questions. Right? If you didn't already know the answer to it, the question would be, well, where is your God's temple? Where do you go to worship? And the Christians said, well, our God doesn't have a temple. Not in that way. His temple is right here. God has chosen to indwell his people individually and collectively, and so that's where we worship. That's where the temple is. And Paul is reminding them that that this has import into what we do with our bodies, right? And he, I I skipped some verses in here. Go back and read 1 Corinthians 6. But he, he describes in kind of some graphic detail, hey, when you sin with your body, Jesus is there with you in that. Because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. Uh... And, and friends, again, I think this is sometimes, this is where we get tripped up, right? We read this, and maybe you don't do this, but I know this is my tendency, and I think culturally this is our tendency. We read this and say, okay, I get it. Uh, you were bought at a price, da-da-da, Jesus died for me. Okay, you mean my soul, right? That's what Jesus died for. No. Paul is explicit here. 
died for your body too. Therefore, he says, always look for the therefore, therefore, honor God with your body. Uh, this idea, right, that when you give God your heart, you're giving him your body too. So uh, another fun memory from childhood popped up for me this week. Sorry, no pictures on this one. But <clears throat> So I grew up probably half my childhood in this little mountain town called Julian. You ever gone there, anybody? Eating apple pie? Of course you did. That's why everybody goes there, apple pie. People want to know, what did you grow up doing in a small town like Julian? And the answer is nothing. <laughs> that is all there was to do, is to eat apple pie. But tourist town. People would come up on the weekends and enjoy all things apples. And I remember, remember this, it was a Sunday too, we were coming home from church. I remember we, we roll up to our house after church in the family wagon, yeah? We roll up, and, and out in our yard, and we had, we had a decent little chunk of land there, a few acres, and there was an apple orchard, because it's Julian, right? But there's, there's this largish family roaming about between the apple trees with bags, and they're picking apples and putting them in the back. And, and the dad is standing there, and he's overseeing all of this, and, and he's got a, like an extra tall beer can, and he's got a portable television. This is in the 80s, right? Handheld television that he would rest on his stomach. And he's watching the football game while his kids all pick apples, right? Our apples. <laughs> and we pull up, and my dad gets out of the car, and it's like, hey, what are you doing? And uh, they're like, well, we're picking apples. My dad says, this is our home. This is our house. You can't pick apples at our house. Right? And, and there, there was a brief exchange, but they, they pretty quickly went on their way. Uh, incidentally, this sort of thing happened in Julian all the time. Like, Julian people would talk to each other about this, right? How... It didn't matter if, like, there's fences and driveways. It's like, oh, there's apple trees. I'm sure this is fine. And they, there's a story. I don't know if this is true, but there's a story uh, told in, in Julian lore about, uh, about another family who comes home to find somebody picking apples in their yard. And instead of making a thing, the guy just kind of makes conversation. It's like, oh, oh, you're from where? Oh, I kind of know that town. Where in that town do you live? And as conversation goes, he gets enough of an idea of where they live that the next Sunday... They drive down there and they set up a picnic on the front lawn of the guy's house. The story might be apocryphal, but I so want it to be true. Such a delicious story. I love it so much. But uh, back, back to, uh, to my family and this exchange on, uh, on our property there in front of our apple trees. What if, what if the, the person had responded and, and said, oh, it's your place. Hmm. Well, you know... Don't know if you've heard, but it's a free country. Or perhaps the person could have responded and said something like, you know something? I have really an unusual appetite for apples. I am so drawn to apples. I'm sure you don't mind if I just pick your apples here. Or the person could have said, and this would have been true, he could have said, you know, I know you own this place, but it's kind of temporary. You won't always. Someday you'll die, and this house and this property will go to somebody else. So I'm sure you don't mind if I pick your apples. Right? Ridiculous. 
And if you know my dad, you can imagine trying to say this sort of thing to Bob Morey. It wouldn't have gone very well in that situation. But it's eerily similar to what we say to God. He looks at us and he says, you belong to me. This body that you live your life in, I shed my blood to purchase that body. I moved in to that body. My spirit dwells in that body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So honor me with your body. And we roll up with all of our weak reasons why. It's perfectly fine, God, for me to do in this body what I want to do. And so Paul is saying to the church, remember, right? This is the action. Remember whose you are. Friends, if if we want to free ourselves from a dualistic mindset that says, my heart can be right with God, but my body can do whatever, we've got to remember. We've got to remember to whom we belong. Uh, That's one. Number two is this. It's choose spirit over flesh. This is Romans chapter 6. And listen again for another one of these, these slogans. It says, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Now, pause there for just a moment. Right? Maybe you, you caught it as it went by, but another one of these slogans that they use and we sometimes use, right? I'm under grace, so I can do what I want, right? It's, again, it's just another way of saying, okay, God, you've got my spirit. That's enough, right? I'm just going to kind of do my thing with this body that I'm in. But Paul's answer here, Paul's answer, he says, no, no, no. He says, you died to sin. So why still live in it? And he equates this with the power of Jesus' resurrection. He says, God's power raised Jesus to life, raised him to a new life after death. And then he applies that to our sin as well. He says, that same power, this is verse 3, his same power lets us live a new life, free from sin. And then here's the therefore, right? Look for the therefore. This is down in verse 12. Paul says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself, and and literally that word there is any body part. Don't offer any body part to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself and every body part to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Key phrase here. Key phrase, do not let sin reign. 
I love that because if we're paying attention, we kind of have to stop there and be like, wait a minute, let sin reign? I just kind of feel sometimes like sin does what it wants. It's not a matter of me letting it. It just kind of goes. Sometimes it feels like our bodies just run the whole shop. Paul says, yes, this is the significance of Jesus dying, that sin has been defeated. Friends, don't miss this. It's not just that Jesus' death forgives us of our sin. It does. But it frees us from sin. You catch the difference there? I mean, they're both incredibly important. But if you are forgiven from sin, but still powerless to it, that's a completely different situation than what Paul is saying here. Not only did Christ shed blood make a way for you to be made right with God, the new life that the risen Christ lives empowers you to a place where you have a choice. Do not let sin reign in your bodies, Paul says. Friends, there is a freedom there. It comes with our baptism. We are joined to Jesus, and as a result, there's a choice. Now, here's how it kind of breaks down. So, sin still lives in our bodies. Sin is still part of the makeup of who we are in our body and our spirit and our heart. I mean, it's still there, even though it has been defeated. And Paul uses here the metaphor of slavery, which would have been very familiar to them. About one-third of the people in, uh, in ancient Rome were slaves. And he says, listen, listen, sin might be there, but it doesn't have to rule. You don't have to let it reign. It doesn't have to be your master. It doesn't have to enslave you. And what do we do? What do we do to live non-enslaved to sin? So interesting to me. Let's start here with what, what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, if you want to be unenslaved, if you want to be free from sin in your life, you don't have to fight to free yourself. It's not here or anywhere in the New Testament. You don't have to conquer. You don't have to defeat the slave master. You don't have to do any of those things because those things have already been done. That is the accomplishment of Christ on the cross. And we we envision this in baptism, right? This is what he's saying in those first few verses of chapter 6, that in baptism, we find that we are joined to Christ. And as Christ goes into the earth and as we go into the water, it symbolizes that death. He says, you're dead to sin, but it doesn't end there. You're also risen. You are raised with Christ, and that power has set you free from sin. So this is really important. The heavy lifting has been done. Jesus conquered sin. It's been defeated on the cross and in that empty tomb. No, here's what Paul says to do. He says, this is the move. Offer yourselves to God. Offer yourselves, and he's, and again, literally the word here is body parts. Offer the parts of your body to God. Uh, he says, to quote him, he says, you do this as those who have been brought from death to life. All he's saying is you show up and you say, okay, here, God, here's my body. Here it is. 
and I'm offering it for your purposes. Right? Do you catch this? The conquering has already happened. For us, it's, it's a posture of opening our hands and receiving and saying, okay, you say I'm free, God. What do you want me to do with that? Uh, now, we need to understand here, too. So we're, we're now free. We have a choice in who we will serve, sin, who is still lingering around, or God, who now indwells us. And as, as dualists or distant children of the dualists, uh, we kind of want to say, okay, I'm free. Great. I'll just serve me. Right? That, but that isn't one of the options. To serve me is the same thing as saying I'm going to serve sin. We have to choose a different master. We have to choose God's role in our life in that way. And Paul is saying, you can do this. Choose spirit over flesh. That's spirit that lives inside of you. Choose spirit instead. Your old master doesn't have to rule you any longer. Uh, So Abraham Lincoln. So um, it's not super commonly known about him, but... uh, about 20 years before Lincoln was president was when he actually freed his first slave. Uh, 20 years before the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, Lincoln was involved personally in abolition, primarily through his role as a lawyer. He was an attorney in Illinois, and at that time, Illinois was kind of a mixed bag in terms of whether it was going to be a slave state or not, and uh, kind of how that played out legally. And one of the first, um, one of the first cases... Uh, a slave woman named uh, Nance Leggins Costley uh, was, was actually uh, tried and won uh, by Lincoln. And uh, in addition to that, he was involved uh, apparently multiple times, but for sure at least one time, on uh, using his own money to free slaves as well. Uh, and that was, was part of his quiet legacy and I think part of how God was shaping him 20 years before he would ever become president and be faced with uh, the question of slavery and what to do about it. But in that, there's a, there's a story that's told of that, that period from Lincoln's life uh, where he was at a slave auction and there was, there was a girl who was being auctioned off as a slave and he bid on her and he won. And he purchased this young woman, and as she was released from the slave block, she started to to go after him and follow him, and he said, no, I I bought you so that I could free you. You're free. You're no longer a slave. And she didn't even fully know what that meant, right? She's trying to get her head around this and saying, what do you mean I'm free? He says, I'm I'm not going to be your master. I've bought you from slavery, but now you're not a slave. You're free to do whatever it is that you want to do. And as the woman thought about for a moment, she said, well, then if I'm free, I think I'd like to come with you. Friends, Jesus has done something very similar in our lives. We were enslaved under the power of sin guilty in our sin, dead in our transgressions, as the Bible puts it. But Jesus has set us free. 
And now we have this choice. What will we do with that freedom? And this is the question that you and I have to, have to ask and have to answer. Do we trust the character of Jesus enough that when freely given the choice, we would say to him, I'd like to come with you. I'd like to follow you. Man, if you really think about it, I think our, our answer has to be yes. Who else would give their lives for the ungrateful? Who else would shed their own blood to have relationship with those who are distant? Who would, when we are rebels, say to us, I want you enough that I'll pay for the privilege of your freedom? And then let us choose. Listen, for us to to live as people who are integrated, who don't live with this gap between our bodies and our inner world, there's a choice to be made. We have to choose flesh over spirit. And and how do we do this? What do we do with this? Well, again, here in, in Romans 6, Paul's word is, he says, offer yourself, offer the parts of your body to God. This is how he says we live into the freedom that Christ purchased. Offer your bodies to God, right? And later in the book of Romans, Romans 12, how does he put it there? He says, um, submit your bodies as a living sacrifice, right? He says, this is an act of worship. Submit your bodies to God. And so here's here's what I want to put out for us as homework this week. This is our our practice. I want to encourage you to take this super literally. And this week, each day in prayer, offer your bodies to God. Get really specific if you want. Offer the parts of your body. Offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. Just start your day that way, saying, God, I don't know what you have in store for me today, but I want to choose spirit over flesh. I want to see my body used for your purposes and not as a slave for sin. Pray that and then, and then look. Eyes open. What is the Spirit going to bring you that day? How might you use your body to do good? To bear witness to God's love, to serve other people in love. Ask him for this. I, I promise he'll show up. You're going to have opportunity to use your body for good. Uh, Maybe it'll be that God uses your mouth that day to speak words of grace to somebody, words of encouragement, words of truth, words of witness. Uh, Maybe he will use your smile to communicate blessing, to communicate acceptance. He'll use your brain, right? Use your mind, use your brain for you to work and earn that you might have something that you can give to other people. Maybe you use your hands to convey warmth, to convey comfort. Uh, I, uh, I tell you, when, um, when I was, was first making my way to Christ, uh, one of the most powerful experiences in that journey for me was visiting a church where I didn't know anybody, but I wandered into a church because I was I was that desperate. <laughs> um, I, uh, I was just desperate. And I was in a terrible place. 
terribly broken. And I remember um, there was a young woman there who, uh, I don't know her name, I didn't meet her before or after, she was just near me and it was this time of prayer and I was just, um, apparently she could tell that I was just a mess. And she put her hand in the center of my back. So gentle, just a little tiny bit of gentle pressure and I knew somehow she was praying for me in that moment. But there was something, the Holy Spirit did something in that moment. There was so much power, and I knew God loved me, that he had me, that somehow I was going to be okay. All that came just in a single touch. How might God use your hands this week? How might he use your voice? How might he use your smile? How might he use the language of your body, your gentleness, as you're with another. Offer, Paul says. Offer your bodies to God. Let's not overcomplicate this, friends. You're free. Offer, in that freedom, offer yourself to God and see what he might do with that. When we give ourselves to Christ, it's the whole thing. Mind and heart, soul and spirit, and body, all for his glory. Let's pray.